Section 19 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume Volume 1b Section 19 Chapter 14 Part 3 Thus perished Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, Prince of the Blood, and one of the most potent barons that had ever been in England. His public conduct sufficiently discovers the violence and turbulence of his character. His private deportment appears not to have been more innocent, and his hypocritical devotion, by which he gained the favour of the monks and populace, will rather be regarded as an aggravation than an alleviation of his guilt. Budlesmere, Gifford, Barrett, Cheney, Fleming, and about eighteen of the most notorious offenders, were afterwards condemned by a legal trial and were executed. Many were thrown into prison, others made their escape beyond sea, some of the king's servants were rewarded from the forfeitures. Harkler received for his services the earldom of Carlisle, and a large estate, which he soon after forfeited with his life, for a treasonable correspondence with the king of Scotland. But the greater part of those vast escites were seized by young Spencer, whose rapacity was insatiable. Many of the barons of the king's party were disgusted with this partial division of the spoils. The envy against Spencer rose higher than ever. The usual insolence of his temper, inflamed by success, impelled him to commit many acts of violence. The people, who always hated him, made him still more the object of aversion. All the relations of the attained barons and gentlemen secretly vowed revenge, and so tranquillity was in appearance restored to the kingdom. The general contempt of the king, and odium against Spencer, bred dangerous humours, the source of future revolutions and convulsions. In this situation no success could be expected from foreign wars, and Edward, after making one more fruitless attempt against Scotland, whence he retreated with dishonour, found it necessary to terminate hostilities with that kingdom by a truce of thirteen years. Robert, though his title to the crown was not acknowledged in the treaty, was satisfied with ensuring his possession of it during so long a time. He had repelled with gallantry all the attacks of England. He had carried war both into that kingdom and into Ireland. He had rejected with disdain the Pope's authority, who pretended to impose his commands upon him, and oblige him to make peace with his enemies. His throne was firmly established, as well in the affections of his subjects, as by force of arms. Yet there naturally remained some inquietude in his mind, while at war with a state which, however at present disordered by faction, was of itself so much an overmatch for him, both in riches and in numbers of people. And this truce was, at the same time, the more seasonable for England, 
because the nation was at that juncture threatened with hostilities from France. Philip the Fair, King of France, who died in 1315, had left the crown to his son, Louis Hutin, who, after a short reign, dying without male issue, was succeeded by Philip the Long, his brother, whose death soon after made way for Charles the Fair, the youngest brother of that family. This monarch had some grounds of complaint against the king's ministers in Gwyn, and as there was no common or equitable judge in that strange species of sovereignty established by the feudal law, he seemed desirous to take advantage of Edward's weakness, and under that pretense to confiscate all his foreign dominions. After an embassy by the Earl of Kent, the king's brother, had been tried in vain, Queen Isabella obtained permission to go over to Paris, and endeavoured to adjust, in an amicable manner, the difference with her brother. But while she was making some progress in this negotiation, Charles started a new pretension, the justice of which could not be disputed, that Edward himself should appear in his court, and do homage for the fees which he held in France. But there occurred many difficulties in complying with this demand. Young Spencer, by whom the king was implicitly governed, had unavoidably been engaged in many quarrels with the queen, who aspired to the same influence, and though that artful princess, on her leaving England, had dissembled her animosity, Spencer, well acquainted with her secret sentiments, was unwilling to attend his master to Paris, and appear in a court where her credit might expose him to insults, if not to danger. He hesitated no less on allowing the king to make the journey alone, both fearing lest that easy prince should in his absence fall under other influence, or foreseeing the perils to which he himself should be exposed if, without the protection of royal authority, he remained in England, where he was so generally hated. While these doubts occasioned delays and difficulties, Isabella proposed that Edward should resign the dominion of Gwen to his son, now thirteen years of age, and that the prince should come to Paris and do the homage which every vassal owed to his superior lord. This expedient, which seemed so happily to remove all difficulties, was immediately embraced. Spencer was charmed with the contrivance. Young Edward was sent to Paris, and the ruin covered under this fatal snare was never perceived or suspected by any of the English council. The Queen, on her arrival in France, had there found a great number of English fugitives, the remains of the Lancastrian faction, and their common hatred of Spencer soon begat a secret friendship and correspondence between them and that princess. Among the rest was young Roger Mortimer, a potent baron in the Welsh marshes, who had been obliged, with others, to make his submissions to the king had been condemned for high treason, but having received a pardon for his life, was afterwards detained in the tower, with an intention of rendering his confinement perpetual. He was so fortunate as to make his escape into France, and being one of the most considerable persons now remaining of the party, 
as well as distinguished by his violent animosity against Spencer, he was easily admitted to pay his court to Queen Isabella. The graces of his person and address advanced him quickly in her affections. He became her confidant and consular in all her measures, and gaining ground daily upon her heart, he engaged her to sacrifice at last, to her passion, all the sentiments of honour and of fidelity to her husband. Hating now the man whom she had injured, and whom she never valued, she entered ardently into all Mortimer's conspiracies, and having artfully gotten into her hands the young prince, an heir to the monarchy, she resolved on the utter ruin of the king, as well as of his favourite. She engaged her brother to take part in the same criminal purpose. Her court was daily filled with the exiled barons. Mortimer lived in the most declared intimacy with her. A correspondence was secretly carried on with the malecontent party in England. And when Edward, informed of those alarming circumstances, required her speedily to return with the prince, she publicly replied that she would never set foot in the kingdom till Spencer was for ever removed from his presence and councils. A declaration which procured her great popularity in England, and threw a decent veil over all her treasonable enterprises. Edward endeavoured to put himself in a posture of defence, but besides the difficulties, arising from his own indolence and slender abilities, and the want of authority, which of consequence attended all his resolutions, it was not easy for him, in the present state of the kingdom and revenue, to maintain a constant force ready to repel an invasion, which he knew not at what time or place he had reason to expect. All his efforts were unequal to the traitorous and hostile conspiracies, which both at home and abroad were forming against his authority, and which were daily penetrating farther even into his own family. His brother, the Earl of Kent, a virtuous but weak prince, who was then at Paris, was engaged by his sister-in-law and by the King of France, who was also his cousin German, to give countenance to the invasion, whose sole object, he believed, was the expulsion of the Spencers. He prevailed on his elder brother, the Earl of Norfolk, to enter secretly into the same design. The Earl of Leicester, brother and heir of the Earl of Lancaster, had too many reasons for his hatred of these ministers to refuse his concurrence. Walter de Reynel, Archbishop of Canterbury, and many of the prelates, expressed their approbation of the Queen's measures. Several of the most potent barons, envying the authority of the favourite, were ready to fly to arms. The minds of the people, by means of some truth and many calumnies, were strongly disposed to the same party, and there needed but the appearance of the Queen and Prince, with such a body of foreign troops as might protect her against immediate violence, to turn all this tempest so artfully prepared against the unhappy Edward. Charles, though he gave countenance and assistance to the faction, was ashamed openly to support the queen and prince against the authority 
of a husband and father, and Isabella was obliged to court the alliance of some other foreign potentate, from whose dominions she might set out on her intended enterprise. For this purpose she affianced young Edward, whose tender age made him incapable to judge of the consequences, with Philippa, daughter of the Count of Holland and Hainault, and having, by the open assistance of this prince, and the secret protection of her brother, enlisted in her service near three thousand men, she set sail from the harbour of Dort, and landed safely, and without opposition, on the coast of Suffolk. The Earl of Kent was in her company, two other princes of the blood, the Earl of Norfolk and the Earl of Leicester, joined her soon after her landing with all their followers. Three prelates, the bishops of Ely, Lincoln, and Hereford, brought her both the force of their vassals and the authority of their character. Even Robert de Vatteville, who had been sent by the king to oppose her progress in Suffolk, deserted to her with all his forces. To render her cause more favorable, she renewed her declaration that the sole purpose of her enterprise was to free the king and kingdom from the tyranny of the Spencers, and of Councillor Baldock, their creature. The populace were allured by her specious pretenses. The barons thought themselves secure against forfeitures by the appearance of the prince in her army, and a weak, irresolute king, supported by ministers generally odious, was unable to stem this torrent, which bore with such irresistible violence against him. Edward, after trying in vain to rouse the citizens of London to some sense of duty, departed for the west, where he hoped to meet with a better reception, and he had no sooner discovered his weakness by leaving the city than the rage of the populace broke out without control against him and his ministers. They first plundered, then murdered, all those who were obnoxious to them. They seized the bishop of Exeter, a virtuous and loyal prelate, as he was passing through the streets, and having beheaded him, they threw his body into the river. They made themselves masters of the tower by surprise, then entered into a formal association to put to death, without mercy, every one who should dare to oppose the enterprise of Queen Isabella and of the prince. A like spirit was soon communicated to all other parts of England, and through the few servants of the king, who still entertained thoughts of performing their duty, into terror and astonishment. Edward was hotly pursued to Bristol by the Earl of Kent, seconded by the foreign forces under John de Hainault. He found himself disappointed in his expectations with regard to the loyalty of those parts, and he passed over to Wales, where he flattered himself his name was more popular, and which he hoped to find uninfected with the contagion of general rage which had seized the English. The elder Spencer, created Earl of Winchester, was left governor of the castle of Bristol, but the garrison mutinied against him, and he was delivered into the hands of his enemies. This venerable noble, who had nearly reached his ninetieth year, was instantly, without trial or witness or accusation or answer, condemned to death by the rebellious barons. He was hanged on a gibbet, 
his body was cut in pieces and thrown to the dogs, and his head was sent to Winchester, the place whose title he bore, and was there set on a pole and exposed to the insults of the populace. The king, disappointed anew in his expectations of succor from the Welsh, took shipping for Ireland, but being driven back by contrary winds, he endeavoured to conceal himself in the mountains of Wales. He was soon discovered, was put under the custody of the Earl of Leicester, and was confined in the castle of Kenilworth. The young Spencer, his favourite, who also fell into the hands of his enemies, was executed, like his father, without any appearance of a legal trial. The Earl of Arundel, almost the only man of his rank in England, who had maintained his loyalty, was without any trial put to death at the instigation of Mortimer. Baldock, the Chancellor, being a priest, could not with safety be so suddenly dispatched, but being sent to the Bishop of Hereford's palace in London, he was there, as his enemies probably foresaw, seized by the populace, was thrown into Newgate, and soon after expired, from the cruel usage which he had received. Even the usual reverence paid to the sacerdotal character gave way, with every other consideration, to the present rage of the people. The queen, to avail herself of the prevailing delusion, summoned in the king's name a parliament at Westminster, where, together with the power of her army and the authority of her partisans amongst the barons, who were concerned, to secure their past treasons by committing new acts of violence against their sovereign. She expected to be seconded by the fury of the populace, the most dangerous of all instruments, and the least answerable for their excesses. A charge was drawn up against the king, in which, even though it was framed by his inveterate enemies, nothing but his narrow genius or his misfortunes were objected to him. For the greatest malice found no particular crime with which it could reproach this unhappy prince. He was accused of incapacity for government, of wasting his time in idle amusements, of neglecting public business, of being swayed by evil counsellors, of having lost by his misconduct the kingdom of Scotland and part of Guienne, and to swell the charge even the death of some barons, and the imprisonment of some prelates, convicted for treason, were laid to his account. It was in vain, amidst the violence of arms and tumult of the people, to appeal either to law or to reason. The deposition of the king, without any appearing opposition, was voted by Parliament. The prince, already declared regent by his party, was placed on the throne, and a deputation was sent to Edward at Kenilworth, to require his resignation, which menaces and terror soon extorted from him. But it was impossible that the people, however corrupted by the barbarity of the times, still further inflamed by faction, could forever remain insensible to the voice of nature. Here a wife had first deserted, next invaded, and then dethroned her husband, had made her minor son an instrument in this unnatural treatment of his father, had, by lying pretenses, seduced the nation into a rebellion against their sovereign, had pushed them into violence and cruelties 
that had dishonoured them. All those circumstances were so odious in themselves, and formed such a complicated scene of guilt, that the least reflection sufficed to open men's eyes, and make them detest this flagrant infringement of every public and private duty. The suspicions, which soon arose of Isabella's criminal commerce with Mortimer, the proofs which daily broke out of this part of her guilt, increased the general abhorrence against her, and her hypocrisy, in publicly bewailing with tears the king's unhappy fate, was not able to deceive even the most stupid and most prejudiced of her adherents. In proportion, as the queen became the object of public hatred, the dethroned monarch, who had been the victim of her crimes and her ambition, was regarded with pity, with friendship, with veneration, and men became sensible that all his misconduct, which faction had so much exaggerated, had been owing to the unavoidable weakness, not to any voluntary depravity of his character. The Earl of Leicester, now Earl of Lancaster, to whose custody he had been committed, was soon touched with those generous sentiments, and besides using his prisoner with gentleness and humanity, he was suspected to have entertained still more honourable intentions in his favour. The king, therefore, was taken from his hands, and delivered over to Lord Berkeley, and Motrovers and Gorney, who were entrusted alternately, each for a month, with the charge of guarding him. While he was in the custody of Berkeley, he was still treated with the gentleness due to his rank and his misfortunes. But when the turn of Mautrovers and Gournay came, every species of indignity was practised against him, as if their intention had been to break entirely the prince's spirit, and to employ his sorrows and afflictions, instead of more violent and more dangerous expedients, for the instruments of his murder. It is reported that one day, when Edward was to be shaved, they ordered cold and dirty water to be brought from the ditch for that purpose, and when he desired it to be changed, and was still denied his request, he burst into tears which bedewed his cheeks, and he exclaimed that in spite of their insolence he should be shaved with clean and warm water. But as this method of laying Edward in his grave appeared still too slow to the impatient Mortimer, he secretly sent orders to the two keepers, who were at his devotion, instantly to dispatch him, and these ruffians contrived to make the manner of his death as cruel and barbarous as possible. Taking advantage of Berkeley's sickness, in whose custody he then was, and who was thereby incapacitated from attending his charge, they came to Berkeley's castle, and put themselves in possession of the king's person. They threw him on a bed, held him down violently with a table, which they flung over him, thrust into his fundament a red-hot iron, which they inserted through a horn, and though the outward marks of violence upon his person were prevented by this expedient, the horrid deed was discovered to all the guards and attendants by the screams, with which the agonizing king filled the castle while his bowels were consuming. Gournay and Mautrovers were held in general detestation, 
and when the ensuing revolution in England threw their protectors from power, they found it necessary to provide for their safety by flying the kingdom. Gournay was afterwards seized at Marseilles, delivered over to the seneschal of Gwyn, put on board a ship with a view of carrying him to England, but he was beheaded at sea by secret orders, as was supposed, from some nobles and prelates in England, anxious to prevent any discovery which he might make of his accomplices. Motrovers concealed himself for several years in Germany, but having found means of rendering some service to Edward the Third, he ventured to approach his person, threw himself on his knees before him, submitted to mercy, and received a pardon. End of section 19 Chapter 14, Part 3